0: Hello, and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, I'm Yurti Bon. Later on today's episode, a fascinating interview that my colleague Ellison Kaplan Sommer conducted with Rabbi Rick Jacobs, one of the most prominent Jewish leaders in the United States, who explains why some liberal American Jews are losing patience with the new government in Israel. But
1: before that...
0: Our guest today is member of Knesset Yossi Shane, a member of the Knesset Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defense and the Subcommittee on Intelligence and Secret Services. A recently elected member of Knesset, we should say, before joining politics last year, he founded the School of Political Science, Government and International Affairs at Tel Aviv University and was also a professor at Georgetown. Hello, member of Knesset Shane.
2: It's a great honor being here.
0: I want to start right away with a story that until recently was the biggest news story in the international arena, now has been pushed aside a bit by Ukraine. And those are the talks in Vienna, of course, still a top priority for Israel. Uh, your party is a member of the ruling government here. When you're looking right now at the process in Vienna, are you worried?
2: I'm always worried. I'm always looking very carefully in what's happening, trying to see that people are not going to get confused, will not be pushed to certain deals, quote unquote, that are rather than treating the issue,
0: perhaps even increasing the threats. You are a member of Israel Beitenu, a party that uh, is uh, a member of the ruling coalition in Israel right now. When you look at the current communications between this government and the administration on the Iranian issue, are you concerned? Do you feel that our needs, our concerns are being taken into consideration by the American side?
2: Let's put it this way. We are always concerned We're concerned by the fact that the Americans have to understand the gravity of the threat.
0: And you think they don't?
2: I don't say they don't, but I say that the way we feel the threat, or the way we envision the threat, or the way we are the target of the threat, is not necessarily the way Washington
0: is seeing the threat. Because we are closer.
2: We are closer. This is our life at stake. Uh, America is uh, the the big empire with uh, lots of other issues, as we know now in Ukraine, domestically, etc. So it is our responsibility to constantly awake the American giant to understand where we are, what are the threats, and and, and how this issue, the spillovers in the region, in Syria, with Hamas, in in Lebanon, etc., etc., this is our responsibility vis-a-vis our American ally.
0: And when you say it's our responsibility, what should be the target that we are hoping to reach? When you say, you know, it's on us to get the Americans to the right place, where do we want to, to bring them in these negotiations? What do you think Israel needs to ask from the... Parti- By the way, not only the Americans, maybe also some of the other Western powers that are a part of this. I
2: think what is ne- what is needed and what is happening, in fact, that we have to relate to everybody in the uh, European arena and, of course, in the United States, that we will, under no circumstances, will allow Iran to threaten us and to become really a nuclear superpower in the region that will undermine the uh, Israel's security and will lead to the abyss of something. We have to relate that to them, and they understand it. Not always the gravity of them, not always the intensity, because this is the nature of things. And I think the European understand it, I think the Americans do understand it. The Americans, of course, have moved. One has to understand that America has moved from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. The Trump administration came with the understanding or that was their vision, as Trump himself articulated. This was the worst. This is his words, quote unquote, the worst deal ever. And The, the Iran deal from 2015. They kind of like left the deal, the Obama deal. And and since 2018, it's clear to all of us that we were not already in the old posture, but rather moved into a new posture when the Iranians perhaps have been stricken by sanctions and by the enmity of the previous American regime, of the Trump regime, but nevertheless have moved very drastically to enrich uranium and cross a certain th- threshold. That's
0: why we've been hearing some criticism lately from former senior Israeli officials like uh, Chief of Staff uh, Gadi Eisenkot and former Defense Minister Yalon, Toward the Trump administration and toward Prime Minister Netanyahu at the time.
2: We also, we, we believe and we see that... When the uh, the Netanyahu administration or the Netanyahu government, our old government, moved with the Trump administration, the question was, what's next? Mm
1: -hmm. And there was no
0: plan.
2: The plan was for the Netanyahu government, one has to say, that the Trump administration will stay in place and the Trump administration will take matters into its own hands Mm -hmm.
0: and will absolutely will deliver the goods. So you're saying Netanyahu bets the entire House on Trump winning the 2020 U.S. election?
2: I say that the strategic decision of Netanyahu was Trump. Absolutely. This was the strategic decision that we are betting on moving away from the agreement, understanding that the Trump administration will remain committed to the sanction, to the mode of punishing Iran if and when they are moving forward, and also delivering the goods in the end with all its might.
0: Wait, what you're saying is that at the end of this... Netanyahu envisioned Trump doing the dirty work for Israel. I didn't say the dirty work. But you're right, that's what I said, but uh, that's that's how I, I understand uh, it.
2: No, the, the the Americans also saw the Trump administration that articulated Iran as the nemesis of the world in terms of terror, in terms of stability, Mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. So there seemed to be a, a symbiotic kind of like understanding of the Netanyahu government and the Trump administration.
0: And then Biden won the election, and this new government in Israel got a troubling inheritance from Netanyahu on the Iran front.
2: We got, first of all, a troubling condition, whereby the Iranians have moved very rapidly to enrich uranium, and an administration that came to the White House not accepting the Trump vision of how to treat Iran, but rather wanted to reevaluate itself because they saw Trump moving away from the agreement of the Obama administration as something which basically was undercutting American national interest. This has been a disconnect. And that disconnect has to be reconfigurated and has to be put together again because we have similar interests with the United States, but we have to articulate the interest. We have to articulate the timing of the interest. We have to articulate the urgency. And this is why we have been in this position. So do you ask me, does the Netanyahu government compromise Israel's security by not moving? I don't want to make such pronouncement, but I will say, that by betting strategically on the Trump administration and the symbiotic relation between the Netanyahu and the Trump administration, we have come to the position that our condition has been worsened in terms of the Iranians enriching uranium and moving ahead.
0: When we look at the other participants at the talks, it's not just the United States and Iran, there is Russia, China, European powers. Who do you think has perhaps the potential to hear out the Israeli argument, to maybe... Uh, help Israel, you know, push along its objectives, aside from the dialogue with the Americans. Do we have any other real friends at that table? Let's put it this way.
2: Everybody understands that the Americans are the key component here for all practical purposes. But I think we have the year of the Russians. We certainly have the year of the Europeans. Many, many European governments understand now that this can really become uh, a, a colossal development in the region, which they did not take into consideration prior to that. Some countries, because of their own kind of like, I don't know if animosity, but trepidation or whatever the term is vis-a-vis the Trump administration.
0: Mm -hmm. If he did A, they had to support B.
2: Absolutely, so the, the, the awkward relations or the problems with the relations also came at the expense of the focus on what we call the ball in, in, in baseball. you know, They didn't put the eye on the, on the, on the ball because yeah. they were more angry at Trump than looking at, at the Iranian case. Mm-hmm. And so we have here something that happened in the last few years. And because also, and one has to make this point, because after the lingering crisis in Israeli politics with four consecutive elections and transitional government, which was not controlling and not developing without a budget, Mm -hmm. we have kind of like compromised in some ways our position and we have to... Tighten up, work out, and we have done so very, very aggressively, rapidly in the last year. And since this government come, we are kind of putting things in place.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're saying that now there's actually you know a full functioning foreign minister, and there's a full functioning coalition, and things are and much different.
2: more than that. Also in terms of our security, in our decisions, mm-hmm. etc. You you quoted Mr. Eisenkot. The former chief of staff of the of the army, who basically argued, and this is his argument, that the decisions to move away from the agreement with the Iranians was done on a very very troubling, uh, I would say, uh, 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 platform, yeah, which it, is the prime minister, the, the the ambassador in Washington, and the head of the Mossad. And mis- that's
0: it. Nobody else was involved. And that's it, including him, the, the the chief of staff of the military. Now this
2: is a this is almost an indictment. Of the former government for not kind of like taking into account the repercussions for the wider kind of echelons of the yes,
0: and and also one would expect this kind of decision, with all its monumental impacts, would at least be discussed with the military, with the foreign ministry.
2: I was not a member of Knesset at the time, or not privy of the discussion, was not member of the foreign and security relations and and the subcommittees, and so I was not privy to that. But to hear that. In an interview given by Mr. Eisenkot, it was very worrisome. And if he said that, I believe that he's right, that I was unaware of that.
0: Let's speak also a bit about Russia and China, the two countries involved in the negotiations that seem to be more closely aligned with Iran and uh, could be the more difficult cases for Israel to try to influence in these negotiations. Uh, Where do you see them standing right now? Do you think that the crisis in Ukraine, for example, uh, could spill over into the Vienna negotiations, could cause the Russians to harden their position. Look,
2: as we know, foreign relations and the world itself is constantly changing and the crises are uh, right now. The, the number one crisis, of course, is on the issue of Ukraine and the rivalry between the United States and, and Russia. And we, we are waiting to see how it will uh, develop. Uh, we have had the uh, ear of the Russians and also of the Chinese on the issue of the of Iran, uh, but certainly we are unhappy, quote unquote, when the attention span is kind of like moving away to another to another domain. Yeah,
0: it's no longer the top international issue. But
2: but I think the Russians also understood before the the Ukrainian uh, crisis that the Iranians' uh, position in the region it's not only the nuclear issue is of course Iranian uh, action to mm-hmm. destabilize the region by uh, in, in, in vis-a-vis Hezbollah, vis-a-vis Syria and in Hamas and in, in all the Israeli enemies. His mm-hmm. is, actions in the region were very much endangering the region. And the Russians understood. That's why you can even see our actions vis-a-vis Syria that the Russians have, did not interrupt us. I wouldn't say collaborated fully, but certainly understanding our needs. There, there was, if not a green light,
0: at least a yellow light
2: you know, regarding lights, you will give any lights you want. But what I'm saying is there is an understanding of our security needs. There were understanding and there are discussion. N- Bennett had five-hour discussion with Mr. Putin. We have connection with the Russians, etc. And with regard to the Chinese, they're kind of far away in this. We have good relations with the Chinese. How much the Chinese are involved in the more, uh, uh, the empowerment of this issue or how much, I think less so, but definitely on this, in the whole scheme of things, as we look at the world and where the attentions are, certainly on the top of the American attention vis-a-vis the global threats it's, or, it's or the global domination is the issue of China. Yes. We know it from their papers.
0: And, 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 well, and Israel a lot of times gets stuck in the middle.
2: Israel Israel is not a player in this, but is affected by it. These are tectonic kind of like uh, seismographic changes that Israel is always kind of like looking around to see what is happening. So when there are relations which are soured now between the United States and Russia and uh, God forbid a war is looming, of course, Israel has to look and see how it will affect us, what will happen on variety of matters. So we But Israel
0: will try to stay out of it.
2: It's not try to stay out. We're not part of it. Mm -hmm. It has to be be said. Well,
0: no, but you can see a scenario where, for example, Russia attacks Ukraine and the United States wants its allies to come out with a strong statement, strong commitment against what the Russians are doing and you could see the western european powers doing it and some australia and, and israel is a very close american ally this will be a problematic situation for us undoubtedly
2: we are not want to be to be drawn into it now, whether we will have to be drawn into it or what will be the repercussions because of one action versus the other, what the Americans... It's yet to be seen. We hope that this will not flare up in a manner that all things hit loose. You know, like it's its its a question that I cannot... Nor do I want to address yeah. because it's, it's speculations at best. But mm-hmm. certainly our desire that the players will get into some kind of a, a rational understanding of what are the possibilities here. Mm-hmm. Because if things kind of like heat up in a manner that is uncomfortable, uncontrollable. Obviously, we are part of the world. We cannot quote-unquote benefit from it. On the mm-hmm. contrary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we can and only maybe enrage a friend, not uh, not course. get anyone happy. Uh, moving on to another interesting arena, you know, when we talk about Iran and, and, and what's going on over there, there's also the regional issue around us. Since this new government has taken over, we've seen a lot of activity between Israel and the Gulf states and other Arab countries. Absolutely. Are you expecting another breakthrough in the Abraham Accords department? First of all, what we have seen... Is really uh, a very
2: a magnificent, something really remarkable happening here in the region, and it's not. It did not begin with this government, but it strengthened with this government. We have embellished our relation with Jordan much more than it has been before.
0: Yeah, we saw we, v- visits of Prime Minister Bene, all around, Defense I Minister Gantz. All around,
2: these are intimate relations with Jordan again, which is our, which are very important. Intimate relations with the Egyptians, mm-hmm. including the visits of the top Israeli officials with Egypt, with uh, 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 Sisi and so on. Uh, and so we, we, are, we are absolutely understanding the, the regional and above and beyond, of course, the Gulf states when we see these visits, the swarm visits, mm-hmm. the president of Israel, uh, you know, you hear the the Israeli anthem in our states. This is a remarkable yeah,
0: defense. Minister Gantz guns flying over Saudi territory,
2: Saudi territory in Bahrain. These are these are remarkable signs of
0: shifts. We, we have gotten used to it, but it's it's extraordinary. I agree. I'm still emotional when and
2: I, when I watch it because the whole idea of the region and and it's 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 it's, it's much of the region right now is understanding that there is much much more in common than in terms of rivalry economically uh, security wise regional wise in terms of like our our future altogether in this region so we we have to be incredibly optimistic about it this is something and also the threats the looming threats of the iranians and so on we understand now whether we will enlarge the abraham accord and we hope that Saudis will come to the fore because Saudi Arabia is the most important, perhaps, Gulf state that we know. Uh, we, we are all looking forward to it. Lots of things are happening behind the scene, and we should do be. You th- we, do we should you think be,
0: it, uh, it uh, depends on the progress on the Palestinian track, specifically the Saudis, I mean? Look, because over there, there has not really been much to report about. If anything, only a sense of more tensions in the West Bank.
2: I will tell you one thing which is clear. In the last decade or so, even more than a decade, some will say two decades. Uh, the region and the world understand, in the past, people used to think that the instability of the region is completely tied to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict.
0: It's at the core of everything. The, in the core Middle of everything. Yeah. And
2: this was, you know, this is also the literature, et cetera, and the rhetoric and the ideology, et cetera, et cetera. And also second and third kind of like tier Yes. of the conflict in
0: the world. No, and it and it uh, manifested itself into the policies of American administrations, rep- only, Republican and dem- Democratic. Not
2: only, not only. We're going to talk about India later, yes. you suggested, all all around the world. People yes. understood. We have with Sudan, with Morocco and mm-hmm. so on. People, people thought. And that has changed. This has changed dramatically. Remember that even after the, the September 11th, And the war in in Iraq People still spoke in those terms That this is kind of like tied.
0: There was linkage at the time They
2: were trying to to draw linkages Until the Karine crisis, remember, was was Yasser Arafat Nowadays, no one anymore talks about this Now, it doesn't mean that the issue of the Palestinians Is not there in the international arena But people understand That the rivalries in the Arab states Between Shahid and Sunnis The Islamic State the, The issue of ISIS The mayhem in Syria And the slaughter of people The instability in Iraq, all these places have nothing to do with Israel. They were kind of hijacked Mm -hmm. in terms of rhetoric on the issue of the Palestinians. Uh, So there are still discussions on the issue of Palestinians. And we are also acting, this government is acting constantly. To keep this zone quiet as much as possible, to have negotiations on economic issues, and not to let it let it sit there and
0: embroil in, in, in this. It seems more successful so far on the Gaza front than on the West Bank front, I have to say, judging by the events on the ground, Gaza, and I know I live on the Gaza border, very quiet for the last, uh, you know, almost year since the Operation Guardian of the Worlds, whereas in the West Bank, it looks like things are boiling.
2: Look, we also, I would say that also in the West Bank, lots of things are happening for the positive. But from time to time, if there are terrorist activities, if there are scrimmages and so on, you know, we're sitting still in an area which can boils up very quickly. But we we see also positive signs as well. And we hope that the positive will be much more than the negative. There will be those who will treat to ignite the region and will, you know, like to ignite the issue constantly. Um, we, We have seen certain hikes in the tensions, mm-hmm. but then they subsided. We hope that the quiet will be maintained, mm-hmm. the military, the police, etc., etc., and, and contain those who act in, in terms of terrorism, mm-hmm. the uh, a- actions which are illegal actions in the region, or by the Israelis, or anything that is undermining this. Uh, you
0: mean like uh, violence by settlers?
2: I wouldn't call settlers. I, I say these are, you know, sometimes extreme, extreme extremists can make, can make one person can make tremendous amount of trouble for everybody else.
0: That, that we know well. Let's move on to another interesting issue, which is Israel and India. Last week, the two countries celebrated 30 years to their open diplomatic relationship. You wrote extensively about India in your days as an academic. And today in the Knesset, you lead the parliamentary friendship group between Israel and India. What do you think is the reason for the strengthening relationship between the two countries in recent years? First of all, I'm delighted that we have this
2: kind of uh, relations with India. These are important, important relations with India. There are lots of jokes, you know, about why India and Israeli relations are are, are flourishing because the, t- the two people together comprise 1.25 billion people.
0: This is like the, the elephant and the bug that's sitting yeah. atop of it, but okay. But, <laughs> but above
2: of this kind of like, these are, this is a mighty, mighty state, important, important. And this alliance is, is growing constantly. And the relations have been growing for the last 30 years, in fact, since we have had relations in 1992, as they started to understand that they have mutual interests, they have mutual respect for certain values as democracies, they have mutual understanding of past civilizations, lots of issues, security needs, which became much more after September 11 and the threats that have started to loom. And the attacks
0: that happened over there.
2: Over there. And, and, And so this has grown dramatically at the time still of the Congress Party, but became even much more pronounced under the Prime Minister Modi that came to power and also ideologically speaking. Mm-hmm. in terms of India and Israel, how they see each other, and much in, um, above and beyond the technological edge that both countries have. And I would add to that, the diaspora component. Jews and Indians abroad. Think about the Jewish diaspora in the United States and, and and Indians in America. There have been relations, tremendous relations, fostering relations, already in decades ago. And
0: you're saying that is encouraging and strengthening absolutely. the ties between the, the home countries. Facilitating them, mm-hmm. encouraging them, building bridges Mm -hmm. and all of the above. But you know, sorry to play spoiler to the party, but many of the things you mentioned as strength in the relationship have also come under criticism in recent years. You say technology, for example. We remember the headlines just months ago about the Modi government using NSO spyware against journalists and activists and opposition members of Knesset. You talk about the ideological component. There has also been some criticism about Modi taking India in a nationalist direction and how it fits together with the direction Netanyahu led in Israel. Do you understand this criticism of the first growing of all, relationship? First of all,
2: I'm, as you can imagine, I read and I know these relations. You read I, it on her arts, probably. I, <laughs> I, 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 not only in her arts. I know, understand. But then I traveled to India. Uh, my last visit to Gujarat mm-hmm. uh, as a scholar just was, just been COVID kind of erupted. 2020. Uh, 2020, just, just two years now, mm-hmm. as we mark two years, two years exactly now mm-hmm. I was in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I understand. But you have to understand also, this is to nitpick. So say, you know, this, but there are serious, serious relations on all account, cultural, technological, uh, trade, uh, geopolitical, all of the above. These are serious matters and also on nationalist matters. The idea that nationalism itself is being condemned as if nationalism, by definition, is something uh, uh, oblique. Is absolutely not the case. India has flourished because of its nationalism as well. There are questions related to India's internal affairs, which I'm not going to get into in terms of the issues of minority, in terms of India accentuating the nationalist model of Nehru versus Modi, which are different. But the, these are these are all internal matters. But Israel and India have tremendous amount, tremendous, really so many issues that are putting us together in the same mode of thinking, in the same mode of, of viewing issues. And this is remarkable because this is incredibly uh, important for us and, and also exciting for Israelis traveling to India, mm-hmm. business-wise, intellectual-wise,
0: all of the above. You're not concerned about potential backlash that because Israel is seen as so close to this government now in India, if there is a change of power, maybe these scandals, these stories could come back to haunt us? I don't concern at all. Israel is
2: not engaged in the internal Indian uh, uh, relations. When I visited India, I met with Gandhi's grandson and, of course, with people uh, of, of of the BJP party and intellectuals from uh, Nehru Jhalal University. And so
0: absolutely, Israel is not part of this. Not taking sides in Indian we politics. Don't, we, we
2: don't take sides. We are indeed close friends of India and the Indian people. The fact that Modi is such a good friend of us has to be accentuated, has to be understood with tremendous amount of passion. And the Indians love it. And students, and I speak to them, there are rivalries in India. I don't want to get into them, but these are politics. We also have rivalries
0: in Israel. You don't see, for example, in campuses there, among young people, attitudes toward Israel of the kind that you would find today on any American or Western European university? First of all, I haven't traveled all the campuses. Yeah, well, it's a big country. That's true. Uh,
2: I traveled several campuses and Mm -hmm. I saw only uh, uh, friendship Mm -hmm. and only welcoming spirit. And uh, because of my uh, expertise in diaspora, I was welcomed. It was an amazing celebration for me as a scholar when they honored me in Gujarat. On the contrary, Mm -hmm. on the contrary, there is a thirst for what is Israel, there is a thirst on the scholarship of Israel, on the philosophy of Israel, of Zion, all of the above.
0: And, and you think the relationship will stay strong now that it's no longer Modi and Bibi, and, but Modi and a different new government in Israel?
2: On the contrary, of course. Mm-hmm. It will just will grow and develop. No no doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. It's also on the issue as I mentioned of the diaspora. people understand mm-hmm. that if, if you look at the, the Indian diaspora, for example, which is interesting, The Fortune magazine defined Indian diaspora the most successful diaspora in American history, which is and all the high-tech, you look what. The, the Jews
0: will have something to say about that, I'm sure.
2: I'm sure that, you know they will accept it. Mm-hmm. you see what happened in Palo Alto, you see what yeah, happened. True. All the transnationals. So one should really celebrate this kind of relations and the depth of this relation. Gradually, we are becoming really intimate friends of the
0: Indians on all levels. And this is something to be uh, very happy about. By the way, do you think if there is an opening for some kind of diplomatic progress with Pakistan, Israel should go ahead or take into consideration our friendship with the Indians? And this might sound imaginary, but we know that it's not only the Arab world that is trying to get closer to Israel today. It's also Muslim countries that have been hostile over the years and are looking into new openings.
2: I can tell you that I was one of the first Israelis that elements in Pakistan addressed and asked to recommend on their desire mm-hmm. some when was this just uh a year and a half ago two years ago you, who,
0: who, who contacted you is it government uh, people no 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 track two uh,
2: track two and it was you know like uh, it, it was broadcast on tv etc mm-hmm. it, it can be shown on if you just google it you will mm-hmm. see it mm-hmm. and also approaching understanding that pakistan has to take a different view the pakistani position on Islamic radicalism, the Pakistani hostility that was going with Sunni hostility or uh, is not not common to every Pakistani.
0: Hostility to Israel. To Israel, Mm -hmm. yes.
2: It's not common to every Pakistani. And some Pakistanis are eager to open inroads to Israel. Understanding- And, And how will that impact the relationship with India? This is an important issue. We have not yet reached this point, but certainly because of the tension between the two countries, if Israel will enlarge the, the circle of friends, Pakistan also will have to accept the, the tenets of this. We we will not compromise our friendly relations with India. But discussions, they're trying to make discussions with us. They're understanding that they have made huge errors in Pakistan, by kind of making Israel as the nemesis of Pakistan mm-hmm. and because of taking hard position uh, on issues of Islamic radicalism. We don't go into the debate between Pakistan and India. It's not our room to be there. But Israel and India are in huge alliance, mm-hmm. of course, and we don't have relations with Pakistan.
0: So right uh, now it's a one-sided... Uh...
2: We don't have relations yeah. with Pakistan. If Pakistan will come to the fore and say, like other we are we are here... I'm sure that Israel is not going to shut the door and say, we don't want relation with a country that recognizes Israel, understanding our needs,
0: uh, want to be friends of us. Uh, One last question. The biggest news story in Israel right now, of course, is the use of the NSO Pegasus software uh, internally against Israeli citizens in police investigations, including uh, according to reports also against uh, a key witness in the Netanyahu trial. As a member of the Subcommittee on Intelligence, how concerned are you about this phenomenon? Were you aware that this was happening
2: before the reports came out? First of all, I was not aware of this reports, of course, like everybody else. Uh, I'm always concerned uh, when uh, democracy and, and freedoms are being compromised. And we're looking into it. Everybody's looking into it. The level of penetration, the behavior... The agencies, some of these issues, of course, are coming to the uh, internal security committee and not to our committee, mm-hmm. but we are watching it very closely. We're understanding it. We understand the problems that we had with it in the international arena. I remember when it started with Macron, etc. And and, e- and all of these issues. We are understanding the issues. And we are treating them in the delicate gloves to see what really happened, because there are also lots of rumors because of the Israeli internal scandals. Mm-hmm. So lots of things are happening right now. I am patient enough to see what is really happening, to learn it. And believe me, I'm learning it as I go alone,
0: including in our committees. Well, we'll have to invite you again to, to get more of an update on that. A member of Knesset Yossi Shane, thank you very much for joining us today for this fascinating discussion. It was uh, a great pleasure coming here and being here. (laughs) Up next, an interview with Rabbi Rick Jacobs, leader of the reform movement in the United States. This interview with Rabbi Rick Jacobs, leader of the Reform Movement in the United States, was conducted by my colleague and Haaretz correspondent Ellison Kaplan Sommer. They discussed the new government in Israel and its ties with the American Jewish community.
3: It's my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Rick Jacobs, president of the Union for Reform Judaism, which is the congregational arm of the Reform Movement in North America, representing an estimated 1.5 million Reform Jews in nearly 900 synagogues. Rabbi Jacobs, thanks for being here with us from snowy Manhattan.
1: Great to be with you, Alison.
3: So I know from experience that you're comfortable going by Rick, right? I can call you Rick.
1: A (laughs) hundred percent.
3: So, Rick, I wanted to start off with this issue of settler violence that's taking place in the West Bank. It's aimed at Palestinians, Israeli civilians, even sometimes at IDF soldiers. So here in Israel, it became a big controversy a few weeks ago after our public security minister, Omar Bar-Lev, condemned the violence strongly and Prime Minister Naftali Bennett begged to differ, calling it, quote, an insignificant phenomenon. And Bennett called to refrain from stigmatizing the settler community. He said, quote, the settlers have been suffering from violence and terrorism every day for decades. We must strengthen and support them in words and action. And um, uh, Minister Barlev really got a lot of um, uh, backlash across the political spectrum for uh, for using the word uh, terrorism in connection to the, to the settler violence. So... Unlike religion and state issues and standing with Israel when it's attacked um, uh, from the outside militarily or diplomatically, this isn't the kind of thing that American Jewish leaders tend to speak up about very frequently. But this month, um, there was a letter sent by prominent American Jewish organizations, including the major bodies of Reform and Conservative Judaism, which, uh, which you signed, um, urging Israeli officials to condemn and take action against, quote, the ongoing terrorism and political violence committed by Jewish Israeli extremists on the West Bank. Um, so Rick, why did you feel it was important for American Jews to speak out on this and therefore decide to uh, join in on signing this letter?
1: Well, I think it's a critical issue. And by the way, the quote that you just read from our statement, I would just let it conclude. It says says, in the strongest possible terms, we object to the ongoing terrorism and political violence committed by Jewish Israeli extremists in the West Bank. Here's the key against Palestinians, Israeli civilians, and IDF soldiers as well. So it's important for us to speak out because every day we actually loudly defend the state of Israel. And uh, this phenomenon, if it was just this one instance that was captured on video that, frankly, uh, hundreds of thousands of people saw, it would be worthy of condemnation. However, there has been a well-documented, documented by the Shin Bet, documented by the IDF, that there is an uptick in this violence. And it's important to call it out. And we called it out specifically as a group of extremists, But if the extremists are allowed to do this uh, repeatedly, it gives the clear sense that this must not be seen as a a really significant moral problem. I I would, however, say that just today I received a response from the foreign minister, Yair Lapid, from our letter, which, as you say, is signed by the reform movement, the conservative movement, ADL, Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Reform Rabbinical Association, and IPF and National Council of Jewish Women. And he said, um, thank you for the letter. He says, clearly, I have spoken out against extremist violence and will continue to do so. It is anathema to our values, beliefs, and way of life. It is so critical for someone like Yair P to say this loudly and clearly, and let it be reported in news sources all across the spectrum, so when we are out there defending the state of Israel, which we will do continuously, it's clear that we know um, what a democratic uh, country does, how it defends the rule of law, and how it matters You know, um, when this kind of thing is, is simply allowed to, uh, to fester. What you call it is important, uh, and what you do in response is even more important.
3: The letter says, as one of the reasons you are uh, uh, making this call, is that these activities are undermining Israel's image and relations with the United States government, American people, and American Jewry. So how do you react when people criticize you from Israel and say, oh, you're just speaking out because this is making you look bad? No, it it
1: makes Israel look bad. (laughs) That's that's the issue. And for the people who you know, do support, and we are all pro-Israel organizations. Very clearly and loudly, it actually undermines Israel's case by its own actions. It's not actually making us feel bad. It's making all of us take moral responsibility. That's critical. That's by the way, when you talk to young people who raise questions about Israel, they want to know that in the elected leadership, and all of its uh, manifestations, understands these kinds of critical moral distinctions. And when you speak up and can actually call this out, your case for Israel is so much stronger.
3: Where do you draw the line when you're making this decision about, you know, where to intervene on a delicate security issue like in Israeli life and Israeli politics? When do you feel like it's your role to speak out?
1: Well, I I feel like when it's uh, a repeated challenge. And when we in public forums, when we are, in fact, you know, at the pulpit or at the lectern uh, making the case for Israel. And we are repeatedly challenged by examples like this to say that Israel simply doesn't uh, uphold the rule of law when it when it affects Palestinians. And, uh, and the answer is, of course it does. And uh, to be able to quote uh, Yair Lapid and others who actually call it out. And by the way, this particular incident that happened last week, is being called out by leaders within the settler community as well. It's being called out by people on the left, the center, and the and the and the center right as well. This is exactly the kind of issue. And yes, I agree with you. There are times when it's too delicate. And from our you know, position here in North America, it feels overly comfortable for us to say things. And so in many cases, we don't speak up. But on this, we did, and we feel very strongly about it.
3: The incident you're referring to, just for uh, listeners who uh, weren't familiar, is masked people uh, attacked a group of human rights um, activists, right, on the West Bank and beat them quite badly.
1: Quite badly. Seven, I think, were hospitalized. A car was burned. And they did it with seeming impunity. And uh, it was there for all to see. It was captured on video. And it was, as I said earlier, it was seen widely. And uh, in, in that sense, it needed to be commented upon and called out, and we stand by that.
3: So um, you praised Foreign Minister uh, Lapid's uh, reaction. His letter was interesting to hear, and in the letter that you signed, you called on Israel to quote unite in strong condemnation against these acts, to work decisively to hold those responsible accountable. So therefore, were you disappointed when you heard Prime Minister uh, Bennett describe uh, these uh, incidents as insignificant phenomena and, uh, you know, say that, criticize uh, Minister Barlev for uh, for making that condemnation?
1: To call these insignificant, I think, is to miss the moral gravity of, of what they represent. And so I think, you know, calling it out in a more strong, clear, unequivocal voice is what's required.
3: Um, so, just to turn to another issue for a minute, since anyway we were talking about Prime Minister Bennett and disappointment, one of the things that this government for change promised, which uh, really lifted the spirits of uh, diaspora Jewry, was a pledge to move forward with the plan for the egalitarian prayer space at the Western Wall, the uh, expansion and uh, and change of the layout. But the government, in its first more than half year, has Clearly dragged its feet, and uh, lately has made it more clear than ever that it has no intention of uh, of moving ahead with this. Are you unhappy about that? Are you planning to speak out on it more clearly?
1: What was clear from day one with this new government uh, this past June, and I was actually in the Knesset the day this government came together and met with most of the factions. Almost all of them were clear that quickly fast tracking and implementing the Kotel agreement was high on the agenda. Why? It was important to set a tone that non-Orthodox Jews in Israel and in the Diaspora matter, and that there is a place for everyone at the Kotel to pray as they choose, and there's a place for everyone within the spectrum of Jewish belief and practice in the State of Israel. Now, we heard that loudly and clearly from the Prime Minister, from the Foreign Minister, from the Diaspora Affairs Minister, Nachman Shai. And then we were told to wait, wait, there's going to be, you know, the budget is really critical. We got to just stay kind of quiet till the budget is passed. Well, then the budget is passed in the fall. Well, we have to, we have to uh, stay quiet. We are not just disappointed, Allison. we are outraged. It is completely unacceptable. Um, and when we hear on Friday in an interview uh, that the prime minister just casually says, you know, we can't do this. I'm sorry, were we not in deep conversation? Were we not hearing loud, clear public promises and just to kind of casually dismiss it? No, no, that's not how it works. And for him to say I'm committed to consensus and there's not consensus. Well, I beg to differ. There is overwhelming consensus in this Israeli government supporting the implement- implementation of the COTEL deal. Let me also say, that in the last three months, there has been a heightened effort on the part of the ultra-Orthodox to demonize uh, non-Orthodox Jews, reform and conservative Jews, and incite hatred. Um, That is the backdrop. So when one concedes and says, you know what, it's not a good time, it's not gonna be possible. Let's just, oh, you know what we'll do? We'll make some modest improvements. We're not looking for modest improvements. It is time for this compromise to be implemented. It is more than fair. And it asks everyone to give up. And for the ultra-Orthodox, they misrepresent the agreement. It actually gives them sole oversight of the Northern Plaza, which is the iconic plaza that everyone sees in there and allows in a separate section for non-Orthodox Jews to pray as we do all over the world, including in Israel, and for that to be protected. This is what this Kotel uh, deal was. It's not, it's not something to incite hate and violence. It's something to celebrate. And frankly, this is the moment where courageous leadership is needed. There won't be unanimity. But guess what? I'm a Jewish leader too. There's not unanimity on anything. Not even what we're going to have for dinner. So to say there isn't consensus, there is consensus. To say that some will disagree now and yesterday and tomorrow, of course. But this is a moment that requires strong leadership. And we're counting on the prime minister and the many voices in this government to say, you know what, this is actually not okay. And uh, as difficult as it is, and yes, there are fragile you know, things that hold this government together, but you have to also come together and do the things that are right, that are right for the Jewish state, that are right for the Jewish people. This is one of those things.
3: I mean, it's particularly disappointing since there are elements in this government coalition who stand strongly uh, with you. So I think that's why the expectations were raised. And there are voices who are speaking out for this to happen. But, uh, you know, the, the people that call the shots, namely the current prime minister, um, uh, seem to uh, have a different perspective.
1: Well, let's also remember. Yes. And let's also remember the current uh, temporary platform. When you go to the uh, Robinson's Arch, the southern plaza of the hotel. It was actually, it's called the Bennett platform because Mm -hmm. Bennett, when he was Minister of Diaspora he just made it happen. There weren't approvals. He just said, this is the right thing to be done and he did it. So this is the same prime minister. And by the way, we admired that was a very courageous act then. And frankly, he wasn't uh, somebody who was unfamiliar with uh, this issue. He's not unfamiliar with uh, diaspora jury, nor is he unfamiliar with non-Orthodox jury. So we thought, you know what? when he says this is something I feel strongly about, we took him at his word and we're going to hold him and not just the other voices in the coalition. This is important uh, at this moment mm-hmm. when there is such unbelievable division sown uh, not just uh, in the Jewish people, but in the world, that this issue would be, in a sense abandoned because it's got some controversy. And, and let, let's really be clear. The voices of hate and demonization from the ultra-Orthodox voices, from the most prominent voices uh, in Israeli uh, political and, and uh, religious leadership. Uh, it is daily. It is an assault. And frankly, you know, I have been at the Western Wall many, many times uh, for Rosh Chodesh, which, by the way, comes this week again. Uh, and I've been physically beaten, as have the women of the wall and others and frankly there really isn't a lot of protection or worry about that that's not the way you know this jewish state can and should handle something as important as religious pluralism and let me just say it loudly and clearly the kotel isn't the only place where this matters it matters in every aspect of israeli life and we're not going away we are the overwhelming majority of jews on the planet and we love being jewish and we love the Fullness of the Jewish people, and we stand strongly with and for the state of Israel. But it's not right that there isn't full and equal uh, rights, and that there aren't places like the Kotel that we are protected to do our holiest spiritual work um, in, and in public and with pride. So this really matters on so many levels. And, you know, to sort of just quietly shove it aside and say, you know, can't do it. Sorry. Oops. That just isn't the way, you know, partners talk. And we're we're expecting a very different response.
3: So um, shifting from troubles in Israel to troubles for uh, American Jews in the United States and North America. Thursday was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and that was the day that Fox News and Tucker Carlson decided to air a special which, quote, uncovers George Soros's secret grip on Hungary and the media. Carlson was talking about Soros's war to make society more dangerous, dirtier, less democratic, more disorganized, more at war with itself, and less cohesive, and he called it a Program of destruction uh, aimed at the West. Joshua Shainis, uh wrote in Haaretz that this is a fundamental part of the white Christian nationalist worldview, and Carlson is openly advocating it and uh, representing it. I mean, what's your reaction about this being aired on a major American news network on Holocaust Day, no less? Alison,
1: everything about that is wrong. Uh, not just that it was on a major American media outlet, that's wrong, that it was on Holocaust Remembrance Day, that's pouring salt on the open wound, and that this is a uh, a phenomenon that we're seeing proliferating throughout American culture, that there is an active effort to sort of uh, trivialize the Holocaust, uh, to call out, you know, uh, vaccine mandates as somehow akin to what Anne Frank went through, which is what um, RFK Jr. said at our anti-vax rally, uh, to say that You know, wearing a yellow star at a anti-vax rally is a legitimate form of protest. It it simply offends not just our historical memory. It offends the core narrative of what is right and wrong in these in these stories. And um, and we're seeing more of this kind of trivialization. And it feeds Holocaust denial. So on a day that actually commemorates the liberation of Auschwitz in 1945, which is the reason why the 27th of January is the day, uh, to have on that day such misinformation, such uh, hatred and vitriol poured out uh, in the name of some kind of pseudo issue is absolutely offensive. And it it is not an isolated phenomenon. So we're very offended. We're loud in calling it out. And we we see it actually in many parts of American discourse. It's not just on the on the right. We see uh, things that are very very concerning on the left and the center. And you know, there's an old Jewish uh, debate we have: like, where is it worse? Where is the anti-Semitism that we see worse? Is it worse on the right? Is it worse on the left? Not the most productive debate to have. How about we just call it out wherever we find it?
3: Absolutely. Um, you're still probably recovering from the hostage-taking incident in, uh, in Texas in a Reform synagogue, where, thank goodness, uh, no one was physically harmed. How did you experience that day personally?
1: You know, just even calling it to mind, it just sends shudders. So um, it was uh, late Shabbos morning. I was uh, just we were just finishing our own Shabbat morning prayers when word came to me that uh, this uh, hostage situation was unfolding in our reformed synagogue congregation beth israel in Colleyville, texas and at that point you could actually you, you could join the live stream it was just frightening because you could hear the hostage taker uh, spewing out his rants. Uh, you could hear in a muffled way you could hear the rabbi rabbi charlie citron walker really amazing inspiring rabbi uh, calmly and very collected, um, you know, uh, standing his ground for eleven hours. Uh, it, it was really extraordinary, and law enforcement really rallied and uh, at the highest echelons of the U.S. government made this a clear priority. Thank goodness, thank God, they they were able to get out safely. But it, it does raise many questions for us about you know the security of our Jewish institutions. One thing worth remembering about Rabbi Charlie Citron walker is he did all of the training that we as a movement make available in our, with our partners, the Secure Communities Network and the ADL. We train our leaders, it's sad but necessary, to know what to do in an active shooter drill, to know how to handle themselves in such a delicate thing. But Rabbi Charlie Citron walker handled himself so magnificently. And I just want to also point out that he is a rabbi who has built so many bridges of love and understanding in the interfaith community, the Muslim community, the Christians, the Sikh community, that those religious leaders came and sat with his family, his wife and two daughters during the whole hostage crisis. This was an example of you know us not standing alone as a Jewish community in our tragedy, in our danger, but uh, the interfaith community joined with uh, so many to raise not only a voice, but to call it out and to call it out in clear, unequivocal language. So there's a lot to take away from this this horrific narrative. And you were seeing already more people getting the training, figuring out how we can get funding from even the US government to make our buildings more uh, hardened, more secure. But it tells us that uh, there is a vulnerability that is across the board. Doesn't matter if you're Reform, Conservative, Orthodox. although I would say that Orthodox Jews have been more at risk in many ways because they wear their Jewishness, you know, in public in a more visible way. But all of us are vulnerable. I also have to say that for those who say we have to just build walls and moats around our Jewish community and just stay unto ourselves, actually, Rabbi Charlie Stitch and Walker's example tells us that's not it. Our security is in our solidarity. This is something unique in American uh, Jewish life, American experience, and it is critical to continue to build those uh, bridges. And when the Muslim communities attack, we stand up and we call it out and we rally to our Muslim siblings. When a black church in Charleston is attacked brutally, we stand. So we have to show up for one another. We have to do that. And when we do, look what happens. Look who stood up for us. So a painful day, uh, a day obviously that we will not uh, soon forget, but one that uh, reminds us what we need to do to be secure and safe. And I hope that uh, we will do that even more so in the coming days.
3: Well, we're speaking on the last day of uh, January 2022. It's kind of amazing that all of the things we've just discussed and gone over have happened in the first month of the year, and we've got 11 more months to go. Um, hopefully, they'll be uh, less action-packed, a little more peaceful. Amen. <laughs> You've got connections in that department. Uh, we'd uh, we'd like to see it uh, calm down maybe uh, over the rest of 2022. Rabbi Rick Jacobs, President of the Union for Reform Judaism, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Great to be with you, and Thank you.
0: And that's it for today's episode. Thank you to Elison. Thank you to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich. And of course, to you listeners. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, Shalom from Tel Aviv.